evening. I was used to saying good morning. I say it all times still, even though it's in the evening, but good evening. Um, well, Sean picked that last song because of my title today. And the title is going to be Heavenly Reminders from a Good and Gracious King. Every reminder that God gives us because we need it is coming from a good and gracious king for, and it's going to have a good and gracious, a good and great result, let's just say, if we heed what these reminders are talking about. So we're very close to coming to the end of the book of Leviticus, a book that many churches, many preachers don't even want to attempt to, uh, to teach in the pulpit because it's difficult. But I don't know about you, but I've personally been blessed going both on the preaching end because of the preparation that, that goes into it, how much it stretches you and expands you and helps you to, to dig into God's Word, but especially on the receiving end, okay? I'm only preaching every fourth time or whatever, okay? The receiving end, I've been extremely blessed by all three of the pastors and how they have taught and preached this Word effectively and rightly, and it's been a tremendous blessing. So we're getting very close towards the end. We just have two more chapters, today being chapter 26. And as we come to the close of this book of laws, that's what it is, right? God is going to give the nation three reminders that are important for them as the people of God. Reminders are always important, especially when we are by nature thick-headed and stubborn and are, have a natural bend towards forgetfulness and sinfulness. We see it week after week after week, especially in this book, that God's Word is extremely repetitive, right? For a good reason because of who we are, right? And the reason for this, again, is our fallen nature's bend towards forgetfulness and sin. So these reminders were vital to the nation of Israel and to us as worshipers of the one true living God. And they ought to encourage us, right? Motivate us and strengthen us and any other word that fits that would help us be the vessels that God has called us to be. So these three reminders this evening are going to be very simple. It's actually more of an easier chapter. It's longer. Okay, there's been a couple of long chapters, but you know, some of these some of these chapters, you really had to do a little bit more work to get to the heart of what was going on in the law, but this is pretty straightforward. So number one, the blessings that come from obedience. Number two, the discipline that comes from disobedience. And thirdly, the forgiveness that comes from repentance. Okay, so we're going to be in Leviticus 26, but before we get into these three reminders, he's going to start in verses 1 and 2, and we're just going to stand and read those first two verses, so you can stand with me, and he's going to start by reminding them of his law, right? So a certain, uh, certain aspects of his law before he gets into it, which is going to be very important. So Leviticus chapter 26, we're going to do the whole chapter tonight, but I'm just going to read the first two verses. So the Word of God says this, You shall not make idols for yourself, or erect an image or a pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are indeed Lord of all, and we thank you that we know you. And we thank you that because of your great love, we can be a true worshiper of you because if you did not give us this true love, we would not be worshipers of you. And we would be awaiting a judgment that is just and eternal. Thank you so much that Christ died in our stead. Thank you for the greatness of our salvation, and help us now, as we look into your word, to understand it and grow closer to you, Lord God, as our Father, as our Creator, as our Master, Father. So we thank you so much for all that you do. We ask that your Spirit would help and guide us today, and we say all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Solomon writes in Proverbs 14:12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And this speaks of mankind's fallen ways and corrupt ways of thinking. Rather than morality, ethics, and truth being absolute, objective, and coming from a holy, living God, instead, it becomes subjective and relative. That is, everything is based on whatever that individual thinks or feels. So you can just imagine the big problems with that. One writer says the following, Moral relativism asserts that morality is not based on any absolute standard. Rather, ethical truths depend on variables such as the situation, culture, one's feelings, and etc. And just think about that for a moment. How often do Christians use these things as an excuse for wrongdoing and sin, especially hiding behind culture, probably very common even within the church. If there is no objective standard, everyone will do whatever they want, and eventually it will lead to complete anarchy and a not very good situation. Solomon says again in chapter 14 in Proverbs, verse 34, says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Wake up, United States of America. Amen? Righteousness is what God is, and it comes from Him. And very simply put, for mankind, you and I, righteousness is us obeying all that He says. So as Moses comes to the close of this section on law, he's going to elevate several things that are vital for Israel as they move on as a nation under God. They were not to do what they thought or felt was right, but what God declared to be right. In Judges 17.6, we read this familiar verse. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we know, if we read that book, what that actually led to. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, there is no ability to do right in and of ourselves. We don't have that capacity. So as he begins this section, he reminds them, again, of three commandments. And the first is the warning against idolatry. And this actually covers, I believe, the first two commandments. God is to alone be worshipped and is to be worshipped rightly, correctly. Mankind in their fallen nature does not know how to worship rightly. Therefore, God gave them a very good, perfect, and awesome law. And this law was not totally abstract either. It was already written on their hearts, but having it penned down or written in stone, it was very, very clear. Amen? And the second was that they should keep God's Sabbaths. And there's been multiple times where there were sections on the Sabbath in this book in particular and in Exodus. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 31 and verses 12 to 17, we read this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day, there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. And whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth but on the seventh day, he ceased from labor and was refreshed. And not much has really changed. We call Sunday the Christian Sabbath, whether that's the actual right thing to call it or not. I like it. We call it the Lord's Day. That's what they did in the, Old, in the New Testament. 
And what we do on this day is, what we do is an identifying mark, we can say, from us, from the rest of the world, right? It's a marker of who we are and who we belong to and what we do. We worship the living God. We care about coming together as a family to worship the living God. We care about the Lord more than anything, and we hold very highly the importance of coming together and fellowshipping as brothers and sisters. This is what we learn in Hebrews chapter 10. Again, that familiar verse, verses 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this principle behind the Sabbath is that we are a unique people in this world and what we do is also to be unique. We are different. And that difference is seen in the word dependent. We are dependent on the very God who made us and saved us, made us his people. And setting a day aside for worship as a family is extremely important. That's why we're here every single Sunday, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And then the third is that they were to reverence the sanctuary. And the reason for this is what the sanctuary represented. That is the presence of the holy, living, true God. Right? God is present with his people. So these laws were a reminder that he is always present and that he always knows that he sees and hears everything. And their worship was in his presence. And to be in his presence, they must be clean. That's why you had all these ceremonial laws that they had to follow. So before he gets into these three reminders, he makes sure to let them know that worship is the priority. Worship is is the priority for you as my people. You are to worship me and no others. So let's get into these blessings that come from obedience. Verses 3 to 5. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. So the first blessing I see here is economic prosperity and abundance in food. We would say that's a pretty awesome thing. Think of how important this was for an agrarian society, which they were, who depended on the rain and on any other variable that was needed for their livelihood to function as a people that lived like this. Our God, we know, is indeed extremely good to us, and He's faithful to His Word, is He not? Psalm 85, 12 says, Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. And because he is so good, we will prosper, right? And then in verse 6, it says, I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall, break you, uh, shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. This is awesome stuff coming here that he's saying for those who are going to be obedient. So the second blessing here is peace and power over enemies. And when I look at this, I can't help thinking to myself that if Israel truly did all these things, they would be the greatest superpower ever and would still be that superpower today. But we know exactly what came from it. Echoing these very similar words, Joshua said in Joshua 23, verse 10, one man of you puts to flight a thousand. We can ask the question, why? Since it is the Lord, your God, who fights for you just as he promised you. 
And the only way this could happen, church, is by them being an obedient and loyal people. Obedience proves His Lordship over us. That's what it means to say, you are Lord. Well, it implies something. I should prove that He is Lord. He is Lord no matter what, right? But our actions prove that He is truly Lord. Verse 9 says, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. So here the third blessing is familial and national prosperity. You know, I think of this, great nations are built by great families. Obedience first starts in the home. First, by good parenting, and second, by children honoring them. Now, this is not by accident, but Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 to 4. What you guys went through this morning. says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the land. And it doesn't mean long life. It means that you would prosper as a nation in the land when you obey your parents. But it doesn't end there. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And we know this includes mothers as well, that as parents, you must do your part, right? We must do our part as parents. Psalm 127, verse 3 to 5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So God would bless them. They would be fruitful and multiply them. Verse 10 says, You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new, that the prosperity will be so good that you will have to make room for all the new grain while still having an abundance of the old. And this reminds me of how Egypt was, right, during the seven years of plenty before the famine. Think of what a blessing Egypt was, that wicked nation, because God placed Joseph there to the whole entire world and especially to God's people as they were beginning a very small family that would become a great nation. Verse 11 says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So the fourth blessing I see here is God's forever presence. So if they do as a nation, God will do as a faithful covenant God, which he is. And what God is doing is reminding them that they are to be different again from the rest of the people, just like us, the church. And because he is present with them and within their midst, they must be separate from the rest of the world. You probably know where I'm going, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He says to the church, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. 
This is not saying that we should have no dealings with unbelievers for how will they ever hear about the gospel and see it lived out by us. But it is saying that the emphasis of our time ought to be together to promote holiness with each other. So this is so important. Next reminder is number two, the punishment that comes from disobedience. And this section is a lot longer. Recall that you can get into the negative section. But we ought to look at this in the positive way. Four times in this section, we see the word sevenfold. And sevenfold, I believe, in this context implies perfect or complete. In other words, in this context, again, perfect discipline, as we will see. Let's look at verse 14. It says, But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you would not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze." And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So we see here quite the contrary of the first section. So what I see here first is fear, futility, and fruitlessness. This is what happens with disobedience. We saw disease being brought upon them. We saw enemies prevailing against them. Quite the contrary of five chasing a hundred and a hundred chasing 10,000. We saw drought, which was devastating for them, again, as an agrarian society. So I believe fear, futility, and fruitlessness aptly summarizes this. Notice first that the fuel that moves us to disobey is despising and loathing that which is from God. And if this is the case, whether we think so or not, we are despising and loathing God himself. It is his laws. It is his ways. Our God is not an oppressive God, but a gentle, loving, and kind God. 1 John 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not, what? Burdensome. And I can't stress enough how important this is for us to believe as the church. The exercise of God's commandments only brings goodness to everyone. A society that upholds God's law is the opposite of an oppressive society. It is a society that flourishes and has peace. And this is what ought to characterize the church Church should be a wonderful place to be because the people here uphold God's good and perfect law and love of, then the love of God is expressed by how the people interact with each other. And that's what I love about Bible Baptist Church. I am very biased towards Bible Baptist. I never want to leave it. I love this church because I believe the people express God's wonderful law. Not that we're perfect because we're not but I believe we strive to honor him. Then in verse 20, 21, Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. So the next thing I say, and a lot of these things, these words are right in the text, destruction and desertion. 
Again, this would affect them economically as they lived off the land. And this section shows this destruction and desertion through dangerous wild beasts. And that's not symbolic language. He's talking about that literally. In Numbers chapter 21, again, right after God provided for them at Hormah, what did they do as they always did? They complained against the very God who provides. And in Numbers 21.6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Again, you move further into Scripture, and we start getting to the kings of Israel. When Israel was taken over by the Assyrians because of their disobedience, they should have responded in the fear of the Lord, but instead they responded quite the contrary. And in, chapter, in the second Kings, chapter 17, verse 25, we read this. At the beginning of their of I'm sorry, at the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Again, God said it, and he did it. He is true always to his word. Part of walking in obedience to God is training up children and children showing respect for authority, especially one like a prophet who was the mouthpiece for God. We know that when Elijah, the prophet, was taken up, that Elisha took his place, and Elisha had a head like some of the men here, not too much hair up top, right? And this next example shows us the severe penalty for disrespecting God's prophet. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23 to 24, we read this. Then he went up from there, he meaning Elisha, and he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. In other words, be like your mentor, Elijah, and be gone from us, you stupid and annoying old man. And when he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. To disrespect God's prophet is to disrespect God. Amen? Jesus wept because of this in Matthew 23, verse 37 and 38. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Sent to her by who? The very God who loves them. He says, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. So disobedience leads to destruction and desertion. Verse 23, And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities... I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. So the next thing here with disobedience I see is strife and scarcity. Rather than the sword being removed, like mentioned in verse 6, the sword is now put in place. And rather than abundance and fertility in the land, there is lack and famine leading to rationing. We saw a glimpse of this, but in a different context in the book of Haggai. Remember, they were sent back to the land by God's amazing grace. And because of a little opposition, or even a lot of opposition, it doesn't make a difference whether you want to think it's a little or a lot. 
they stopped obeying. And the prophet called them to consider their ways. And he says this in chapter 1 of Haggai, verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain and new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Again, God said it, and he does it. He is always true to his word. We continue on in verse 27. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. No, that's not symbolic. That's literal. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another, as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. So the next here, that's a very long section, but I see depravity, devastation, and deportation. I can't think of anything much lower than cannibalism. This happened several times in Israel's wicked history. The weeping prophet Jeremiah says, The hands of compassionate women in Lamentations 4.10, The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. And because they didn't destroy their idolatrous sanctuaries, God would bring it to destruction himself. And look what it says in verse 30. God says, I will abhor you. I can't imagine that. I can't witness that as Christians. That will never be. He says, I will abhor you. And then this would lead to the climax, which was deportation from the promised land. The very land given to them by God's amazing grace. But as we have been seeing throughout our study of the Old Testament, and as we will continue to see, they were given the land by grace, but they would only remain in the land if they were obedient. And why is all this? Well, God gives us some light on what should characterize his people. John 14, 15, a very short 
simple, straightforward verse that is extremely deep and profound. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I don't know how I can add to this to make it easier to understand, but I believe he is saying here, you have no right to even say you love me when you don't keep my commandments. And if and when you do break them, because we all do, if you love me, you will repent. And he being a faithful and forgiving God will always forgive us. He is true to his word. Again, Romans 12, 2, our, 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 our church verse, right? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Israel knew the will of God very clearly, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I want to point out something that I don't know if you guys missed it or if you saw it that will lead into the final part of this message that we cannot miss. After God tells the ifs in regard to their disobedience, he gives them the thens. And I want to look at what he says here in a couple of verses. Verse 18, And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Verse 21, Then if you walk contrary to me and, I will, and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Verses 23 and 24, And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. Verses 27 and 28, But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And do we see what I believe is somewhat implicit and implied here? Every time they walked in disobedience and received the discipline of the Lord, it was to turn them back to him. Come back to me. The purpose was to bring them to repentance and be restored, to have fellowship with him again. And because this was a national thing, there was certainly punishment on the evildoers, but we need to be reminded of something. There is power in the remnant. Israel was never a nation where the majority was saved. I don't believe they ever were. But whenever there was national prosperity, you will see that it was because of the remnant's faithful obedience. Faithfulness and obedience is in one sense a natural leader in and of itself. Their repentant and obedient hearts shined over the disobedient and unrepentant ones. Their actions were somewhat contagious, we can say. We saw this with King David and some other faithful kings. We saw this with Moses and Abraham. We saw this with several of the prophets, with Joseph and Daniel. And if we look throughout history, we saw this with the Reformers and especially the Puritans and especially their influence in our nation. Our own nation, who was never, which was never a Christian nation, was influenced by the remnant. Nations are blessed when God's people, who are always the remnant, faithfully obey. Your employer is blessed if you, being a remnant, are faithful and obey and work hard. But using David as an example... Though the nation was blessed by him, there were times that the nation suffered big time because of him as well. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 17 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So here we see that suffering for righteousness is good and a badge of honor. We experience fellowship to the greatest extent on this earth when we suffer for righteousness' sake. But there is a different kind of suffering, isn't there? There's a suffering because of our foolishness. 
that David at times also brought on a nation. And God's people, though cleansed eternally for their sin, can suffer in this way, and it has consequences. Verse 15 of 1 Peter 4, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey God? who do not obey the gospel of God. And what I believe Peter is saying here is that judgment for sin has happened already for the believer eternally, but judgment for sin still happens temporarily while on earth. And this is in the form of discipline. And it's always for correction. And this judgment starts with us first. God's people who know better who bear his name, will not get away with unrighteous living. There will be consequences, like David had consequences. And just like the consequences that are severe for those who do not believe, eternal, the same seriousness should be taken by God's people to obey and live righteously in this world because we represent him and are his ambassadors here on earth. But God's people alone experience something that is beyond amazing. And that is the forgiveness that comes from repentance. Let's look at verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, how great is this? That no matter where they were or what they did, God was a merciful and forgiving God when they humbled themselves and repented of their sins. It is here that we learn of the, the unilateral nature of God's covenant, that he would do it all, that he is the God of covenant and he never breaks it. This was first seen in the garden with the first good news and the covenant of grace. You know, the whole story of Israel really mirrors that of Adam and Eve. Eden was a glorious place with everything one could ask for. And the garden was its sanctuary. When they sinned, they were cast out. But a wonderful promise was given to them for a future hope in Genesis 3.15. Then when Abraham comes on the scene, we see that it would be through his loins that this future hope would come to God's people. We know that this would come through a physical nation, a nation that God would bless greater than any other physical nation. Romans 9, verse 4, concerning the Israelites, says they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And though this nation was evil, just like all the other nations, God would be faithful to himself, the patriarchs, and his chosen remnant. In Genesis 12, 3, when 
Abram first comes on the scene and God calls him. He says these awesome words in verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Christopher Wright says something that I think is oftentimes forgotten. He says it kind of the reverse way that we often see it. And I agree with him. He says, God's commitment to Israel was because of his commitment to all nations. And I love this. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I would take it further and say, because of his commitment to Adam and Eve and the promise made to them, and to the commitment to destroy Satan. And I would take it even further and say, because of the Godhead's commitment to each other and that wonderful agreement between themselves, that they would do a glorious work for a very unglorious people. And all the families of the earth will be blessed because Christ, the Jewish Messiah, is the promised seed that will crush the serpent. He is the Savior not just of Israel, but of all nations, and only the Savior of those who believe. And we know that in the greater and broader picture, we are Abraham's offspring. Romans 4, verse 16 to 18, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And in hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your descendants be. In Galatians 3, 23 and 29, it says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So going back to the forgiveness that comes with repentance. You know, I say this all the time that I believe Israel was a type of the church. In order for them to be right with God and have the blessings and be saved, they had to acknowledge their sin before a holy and righteous God, believe and trust in His goodness and kindness to save, apart from any works, and turn to Him. And He was always faithful and would restore them. And if He said, I will bless you for obedience... He would bless them for obedience. And if he said, I will curse you for disobedience, then I will do that. And he did. And we saw this with Daniel and Nehemiah. Think of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, his prayer in Nehemiah reflects what we just read here. Confessing the sin. He held God to his word. Lord, you said this, but if we turn, you would be there. We must remember that as the church, we are positionally in perfect standing with God. Thank God for that. We stand on the merits of Christ and Christ alone. He fulfilled the covenant of works for us, and he died in our place and bore the full wrath of God that was due to us. But when we sin, as those who are positionally, nothing changes that. But when we sin, is there consequences? When we sin, there is consequences. When we sin and do not repent, that means we know it. We know what we did. 
and we do not repent, then guess what? We are not right relationally or parentally with the very God who saved us. Fellowship is broken, and it's going to remain broken until we repent. But praise God for words in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How beautiful is that? And David knew this in the Old Testament under the law. He knew that being silent and not grieving over his sin and confessing it and repenting of it led to a nauseating, disgusting feeling in his whole soul and body. A feeling of nauseating misery. And he says in Psalm 32, right in the beginning, first five verses, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and who, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. And I love when David had to choose his penalty. He said, I'd rather put myself in the hands of the Lord, for he is merciful. In the same way, his son, King Solomon, learned from his father the importance of this principle. He says in Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We know that God is near to all who come to him with a broken and contrite spirit. And if you find yourself today, church, as a believer that has no joy because you have sinned and things aren't right, Remember all this and know that he wants the relationship to be restored. And he wants to have fellowship with you and me. You're his child. And he is your father who loves you. But we must truly repent if we want fellowship to be restored. And the beautiful thing is this. This is what's beautiful. And I know everyone here can amen this is that when we do, when we do repent, that restoration of fellowship is immediate. It's immediate. It's as if he's embracing us with his heavenly arms. Amen? And it's a wonderful blessing. We have already been forgiven as far as the east is to the west. You have been chosen before Adam and Eve sinned and before the first day of creation. God is true to his word always. Remember that our salvation is for his glory. We don't bring him glory and honor when we disobey. We don't. We don't take away from his glory. We can never do that, and we can't add to it. But we don't bring him glory and honor when we disobey. When we disobey, we disrespect him and think lightly of him. So I want to close with three passages of Scripture, one I already read. And one is one that Pastor John gave me to remember about 20 years ago. And at that time, I was newly married and dealing with some light persecution, I'll call it, at work concerning my faith. Just getting made fun of for your faith and just dealing with that construction worker kind of mentality and me being the one that's not going to do certain things, not look at certain things, Right? And these verses have always stuck with me, and they speak of the great fellowship we can have with our Lord, the very purpose of our salvation. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 and 17, uh, sorry, verse 13 and 17, and it says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, 
but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, but a certain way, right? Not like an arrogant jerk with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And we just read of the suffering that stemmed from disobedience and the blessing that comes from obedience. We are still blessed by obedience, are we not? But the irony is this. Sometimes that blessing is in the form of suffering. Now, it takes some real vertical thinking to understand that. But sometimes it comes in the form of suffering. Again, I read 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19 before. I'm going to read it again. It says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. He's assuming this trial is coming again because of your obedience. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, He is blasphemed, but on your part, He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. And God's goodness and faithfulness must be the fuel that motivates us to continue to obey even when we suffer. Paul reminds us in the epistle to the Philippians that he counted all his credentials, everything that he had, all the good things that he had that made him really a high person. He counted them all as nothing, as loss for the sake of Christ. And all this with a goal in mind. He says this in chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So church, will we choose to have the same attitude as Paul. Can we take from what we learned in Leviticus and be motivated as the church who has been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb, who has done nothing to have right standing before God? Can we learn from what we learned in Leviticus and be motivated to obey Him? Will we choose to do the same with this great gift of salvation that he has freely given to you and I as the church? Think about those words, and I trust that God will do whatever he has to do in each and every one of you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for doing what you need to do in me. I thank you for continuing to do what you need to do in me because I am extremely needy. I thank you for your grace and mercy, for your forgiveness that is beyond amazing. I thank you for the very Spirit of God, the helper that you promised that is in us, 
to live this Christian life, which would be impossible apart from you. Father, again, I pray that you would save those who are lost, that they would enjoy the same wonderful blessing that we enjoy as your people. Help us, I pray, Lord, as we go about our week. If you grant us tomorrow, help us, Lord God, to be the best version of ourselves for your glory. Help us to grow more close to you tomorrow and have a better day tomorrow if you grant it to us than we had today. And I thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and close on the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.